Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reading Rebellion Holiday Special 2021 edition. Um, we apologize for being a couple days late on this one. Um, like many of you, we were spending some time with family over the last few days. Um, getting chummy. Getting chummy. Getting yeah. chummy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as usual, um, I'm Arik. And once again, I'm joined here by the lovely Margaret. Hello, I am Margaret, and here I am for today's episode of Reading Rebellion. (laughs) (laughs) So for our Christmas-themed episode, we decided to take it a slightly different direction. Um, And we have two Christmas ghost stories for you today. Um, one of them comes from a collection by Roald Dahl. It's called Roald Dahl's Book of Ghost Stories. And it's quite a short story. Um, it's called Christmas Meeting, and it's by Rosemary Timperley. Uh, so we'll start there before we go to the Book of Irish Ghost Stories. So, Margaret, what did you think of this? Short story. I thought it was quite punchy, being that it was only, you know, two pages, maybe two and a half pages. Yeah, I think it was quite punchy. I think that that um, is something, honestly, that I love about ghost stories is you can have like these really long and involved, like, you know, like a whole novel, you know, like Stephen King sized ghost story. Mm-hmm. But you can also pack like a spooky little story in just like a couple pages right you know and it kind of i think that ghost stories for me are something that truly shows the um what is the word i guess like the power of the writer the what's like the skill the skill is the word skills the word i'm looking for the skill of the writer because okay. i think if uh um that's actually something that rodol touches on in the introduction is that there's a lot of really great writers out there who can't write a ghost story to save their life you know like Mm -hmm. they can't make a spooky thing to yeah save their ass um but um it takes a lot of very skilled writing and in how you build the story and how you um you know kind of deliver a lot of these lines um which is, I love. I think it's awesome. Um, I also love that, you know, they can be really short, so you can read, like, a billion and a half of them, which is awesome. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, in order to create, like, fear or spookiness, right, it's similar to trying to create, like, suspense, right? And you have to be very systematic with and very careful about, like, your word choice um your pacing like how you're gonna reveal things because you know to take the premise of this story right if you were to just tell someone what happens in the story it's not spooky at all right um and spoiler alert spoiler alert we are just gonna tell you because it's a short story uh a really short story i still think it's worth reading for interest's sake but basically what happens is that um This lady is spending her first Christmas alone, and she's renting a room, and she's reminiscing on how she's 50, and 
she's had good Christmases and bad Christmases and all of these things, but it's the first time she's been alone, and it's kind of eerie to be alone on this night that is, in her culture at least, meant to be about, you know, spending time with family and being together with people and, and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she kind of talks about how it's kind of quite queer to be spending the day on one's own on Christmas. Right. You know, and she's kind of, I think uh, the setting here is um, North UK somewhere. Yeah. So it's kind of like chilly, you know, it's a little, it's also like um, mid 1900s. So they have, um, there's like the hearth going and like, like again in a little inn, she's the only one in this room. And then um, in the story, what happens is a man walks into her room and he goes, oh, I'm bad. Totally thought this was my room. Um, And then they sit and they're like, oh, ha ha ha, quite silly for us to both be spending Christmas alone. Um, You know, and they kind of are like, ah, yes, we both understand each other. They're both writers staying in this, you know, who are staying in this room. Um, He's like a kind of wacky poetry guy um who's like i you know sitting here writing my poems um my family doesn't understand you know my need to write about my life and she's kind of in the same um in the same boat you know they kind of have these similarities um and then um at the end um they, sorry, Um, what happens is they, she kind of, you know, looks up after having this, she's going to make this man a cup of tea and he's gone. He disappears, right? Um, And then she's like, huh, weird. Okay. He must've, you know, must've grown tired of me. And then, um, so in this inn that she's at in her room, there's a bunch of books in the room. So she goes to read the book, which subsequently is his book this man's book that the man she was just talking to um and it says it was published in 1852 which is a hundred years before um this lady is supposed to like where this lady is supposed to be Mm -hmm. um and it's the entry that she turns to is his entry of christmas day where he's alone in the very room that she's in. And he said, it was very strange. I met and talked to this lady. And then suddenly she was gone. This lady was just in my room. Um, and then there's a publisher's note in the in the poem, in the book of poems where she just was reading his Christmas entry mm-hmm. um, that said that the man who she was talking to had died of a sudden heart attack the night of Christmas Day in the room that she was in. Um but it just is, like, they tell you that in just, like, an excerpt from what is supposed to be this man's poetry. Um, yeah. I yeah. I don't know if I revealed <laughs> too much there. No, I don't think you revealed too much. I mean, I think it's impossible to talk about a story this short without just revealing the story, you know? Yeah. Um, I really like the way she, like, phrased this last publisher's note that you were talking about. So I'm just going to go mm-hmm. ahead and read it. Um So a publisher's note followed the last entry. Francis Randell died from a sudden heart attack on the night of Christmas Day, 1851. The woman mentioned in this final entry in his diary was the last person to see him alive. 
In spite of requests for her to come forward, she never did so. Her identity remains a mystery. Um, and it's just an example to me again of how this the writing is um, really good, and she really draws out you know this mystery and intrigue of like whoa like that guy was here a hundred years ago, and and how she like slowly unravels the thing even though it's such a short story you know and i think it's what i think is really fun about this is she does all of this unraveling and it's like you kind of come to like okay there was a ghost in her room without at any point like explicitly saying like this man was a ghost in her room yeah um it totally like leaves it at like a this man who has the same name as the man that she talks to died in this room on this day like a hundred years ago um but it doesn't say you know like that he wasn't there at any point you know it doesn't kind of reveal that if that makes sense yeah no it totally makes sense that the fact that she never says ghost is actually an interesting one the only usage of the word ghost in this story is in the second paragraph and it's just talking about christmas alone where it says i've never spent christmas alone before it gives me an uncanny feeling sitting alone in my furnished room with my head full of ghosts and the room full of voices of the past. Um, but she doesn't say ghosts again throughout the rest of the story. Which I think is kind of fun, little excellent foreshadowing there without like, again, with just being so subtle right. about it, which is super fun. I love that. I agree. And I think it's to your point, like, I think the short story in general and the ghost story especially is a very technically challenging form of writing. Like you kind of have to whittle down your uh, text to just like the pure essence of what you're trying to say. Right. Yeah. So the fact that she can do things like foreshadowing and she can slowly unravel the punchline across literally like two pages is pretty impressive. It's pretty awesome, honestly. Yeah. It's super cool. I think that's always like, again, the most fun thing. It's kind of, you just, the writing itself forces you to make a lot of these inferences. It's like they say a lot without actually saying it and leaves a lot up to the imagination, which I think is kind of also the fun of it because I think the imagination can be a lot scarier than anything you can put into actual writing. Right. Yeah. Makes me want to read um, more by Rosemary Timperley. I've never really heard of or known of Rosemary Timperley. No. Um. I mean, I totally suggest you go and read this whole book. One thing I actually think is also really fun about um, this book is that Roald Dahl speaks on um, how hard it was to find, like, really good short ghost stories. Um, and in the intro, he's talking about how he originally kind of compiled all of these because he was going to um, be a writer in a TV show. Um, and all, and. and he also noted that a lot of the really good ghost stories that he found were all written by women, largely. Interesting. Yeah, right? I wonder um, why that is. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't know. Um, I think you can kind of make a lot of, again, inferences about why that is, you know? It's maybe you can put, maybe women are better at putting emotion into their writing, and it's kind of the weight of the emotions. I don't know, though. Um yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah. Um, I think one more thing that I liked from, like, again, going back to, like, this really slow unraveling of the punchline. 
like you said, she said that she's going to make some uh, coffee and then um, she goes to make the coffee and then she says, you know, but I must have offended him for when I look around, I find he has left me. I am absurdly disappointed. And then, you know, it kind of goes through. She's like, she finishes making coffee. She turns to the bookshelf. Um, she grabs a random book. And then, you know, still, this is the third last paragraph of the book, of the story, not the book. So it's like right almost at the end. And she's still saying, sipping my coffee, inhaling my cigarette smoke. I begin to read the battered little book. Published, I see, in spring 1852. It's mainly poetry. Immature stuff, but vivid. Then there's a kind of diary. More realistic, less affected. Out of curiosity, I, to see if there are any amusing comparisons, I turn to the entry for Christmas Day, 1851. I read. And then that's where it, it goes to what you were saying, where she realizes, oh my god, this is the same guy. But it's not even saying, like, what I think is really fun is it doesn't even give you what her realization is. It just says, like, this was the editor's note, and then that's the end of the story. Yeah. You know, like, editor's note, this man died on Christmas Day. Um, yeah. Seeing some mysterious woman who never came forward. And, you know, it's kind of like, again, letting you infer that she was the woman who he wrote about a hundred years ago. Huh? You know? Right, right. Um, yeah. And maybe that's of... part of what makes an effective ghost story so difficult to write is that you have to leave a lot up to the imagination. Like, you can't yeah. overly specify things because ultimately, like, you know, fear or suspense comes from some level of, like, the unknown, right? Absolutely. So if you over-specify it, it's going to be, like, Casper the Friendly Ghost or something. Like, it's not going to be yeah. spooky. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, like, you have to paint a vivid picture and you have to kind of put the reader, you know, you have to put the reader in this little room in an inn with these people, you know, like, alone on Christmas, like, having a little chat, and then, oh, he's gone, you know? But then there's more. There's, like, this great unknown and yet, like, she's painted a pretty good picture for you without, you know, really painting the picture. I think it's really fun. Yeah. I love I love the ghost story. It makes me wonder if we should do more episodes on, like, either ghost stories or horror in general. Maybe a dive into, like, um, like, I'm thinking from this, right? Like, what you're talking about with uh, the skill required to make short stories and ghost stories, you know, how does that apply to something like The Twilight Zone? Um, how does that Absolutely. apply to a comparison between, like, Stephen King novels and the film adaptations of them? Um, I mean, yeah, like I'm, a, I'm a really big horror fan. I love horror. I love ghost stories, anything kind of spooky-dooky. Mm -hmm. um, big fan. So I'm always, I'm always interested in reading the spooky stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can uh, even go back. I don't know. Did you ever read the like scary stories to tell in the dark book? I don't think so. <gasps> we totally have to acquire that and read that. I love those. I remember reading that in like first grade and they're just like scary stories, you know? Um, yeah. That's fun. Yeah. yeah I'm little definitely down. stories. That sometimes, you know, it's like looking back, it's like from my memory now, of course, I haven't read those stories for longer than I would like to think. Mm -hmm. um, 
like how how appropriate even was that and how spooky would they be now also a good question yeah but i think that would be really fun is to see like how spooky have like are they able to make children's writing yeah you know which is very much like i guess this one isn't graphic or anything either but um yeah it's just you can leave a lot of suspense and spook in something that's very very pg um which is fun i think again that's just very skilled you know you can use all of these elements of like basic human fear in a way that is relatively mild and harmless yeah no that is super interesting um not the same at all uh but that related to like children's spooky stuff that makes me think maybe we should do an episode on the grim fairy tales too that could be an interesting one yeah for sure that's obviously a different like that's why i said not the same at all because those are not pg in any way they're very violent well i think that kind of goes back to your like the adaptations that they make you know like because i think the thing is is the grim fairy tales are now incredibly pg i think like they've been adapted to be very pg but where they come from you know is like a bunch of horrific shit um (laughs) yeah like the actual grim fairy tales are like quite disturbing yeah and like kind of like i think that they're they're gonna be more gory but you know like it's definitely been weaseled down to not be that gory right no i absolutely i absolutely agree i think it would be really fun to dive into those um i don't know how many actually of the original grim fairy tales i've read I definitely, like, had a Grim Fairy Tales book that was... But then, again, that was, like, a... Translated, abridged sort of thing. Translated, abridged, like, no gore and horror. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we saw the... Um, not we saw. I, I remember seeing when I was a kid um, at UWC, the school I went to... Um, when I lived in Singapore, um, the upperclassmen, maybe it was Ion's grade, did a grim fairy tale like play thing uh, that I got to go see. And I remember it being very spooky as like an eight year old because there was like lots of violence and stuff like that. It was pretty harsh. I think they might have done Cinderella, grim fairy tale, or something like that. I don't know if it was actually Cinderella or if they are, if Cinderella's in there. I don't recall exactly, but, um, yeah. Um. Interesting. I feel like, I might, maybe again, I'm making this up, but I feel like Cinderella's in there. And then, like, in the grim fairy tale, they might, like, cut her feet off or some shit. Yeah. Yep, um, yep, yep. I remember that being, uh, like, I remember that. And they did a pretty good job of it, those kids did. Um, but then again, I didn't know, you know anything i was like a tiny child um yeah i actually we should pick up a copy of of an unabridged translation of the grim fairy tales i think that would be really fun um and really interesting yeah yeah i always my biggest struggle in my life really is that i have a lot of books that i want to read but my favorite way to pick up books is to just find them like in free places um like i love like what we have here is like the free little libraries i don't know how widespread that is but it's just like little you go for a walk around the neighborhood we live in and there's just little boxes with free books in there 
You can like bring books back if you read them and you hated it and you never want to see it on your bookshelf again. Um, yeah, that's my favorite way to find books, which definitely means that like I have books that sit on my want to read list forever. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting way of doing it, honestly. And I think that, you know, what I admire about the way that you read is just like the quantity of your reading, you know? Like, I think I try to be more targeted about, oh, I want to read this, I want to read that. But the consequence of that is I end up reading much less than you do. Um, and you read, like, a ton, constantly. So it's, it's I awesome. I do read a lot, yeah. I definitely am a very different reader than you and I on, which I think is a really interesting thing, especially in looking at doing, like, your Read More app, is that... Um, it's not necessarily targeted to someone like me who just like picks up whatever book they feel like reading at a moment's notice. Um, yeah, I think at least not initially, perhaps. I mean, yeah. I think you tell me, but what I would imagine in the future would be really cool for you would be like, um, like the history of like, you know, here's what you've read over the past year, right? Or if like you could cluster and say, these are the types of books or you read this author, you know, this many times and you read yeah. this. Yeah, somewhere to go and like when I'm on the phone with a friend and they're like, what have you been reading re lately? And I'm like, um, and I can think of like one book that I read like last year. Yeah, like imagine if you could get, <laughs> you know, a Spotify wrapped, but for your reading for the year. I, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be, be really interesting that'd be crazy right yeah um but yeah yeah words that's consumed. a long ways away and it's yeah, definitely not sure. the initial target the initial target you're totally right is going to be more about people who are trying to um really work on improving and tracking their reading habit you know um yeah i'm someone who almost needs to read less um, <laughs> I need to like do things in my life that aren't just like reading ghost stories sometimes. <laughs> so, well, but you, you do a pretty good job. Anyway, I don't. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. But on that note, this other ghost story we read, um, a strange Christmas game by Mrs. J. H. Riddell. Um, this book is a book of Irish ghost stories. Um, I'm honestly not even really sure. Okay, no. These are, of course, obviously, the Irish ghost story is a bunch of Irish um, writers. I don't know why I thought it wasn't. Um, yeah, A Strange Christmas Game. Um similar and yet different um it's a longer story than the one that we read um yeah uh, here the story is kind of the beginning of the story is about this family um i think it's just um this family that inherits this big mansion basically an estate um in england and um you know, it's kind of this, like, has bad vibes, basically, basically, not like great people don't think kind of people stay away from it. Um, lots of people don't like to work there. Yeah, the previous owner who was like his distant relative wasn't living there. He came there once and then like left and never came back. Yeah, it's been like empty for some like 50 years or whatever. Yeah, like the caretaker like doesn't 
there's like only like I think like the caretaker uh, and her husband or something like that who still stay around the property. But these two people, the the guy and his um, it's his sister. His sister, mm-hmm. yep. They are they come from poverty, um, you know, and and through luck, essentially, a kind of distant family member dies, and then they inherit this estate. So they're like, obviously, we're gonna go live there um, because at that time, an estate meant wealth, and you could derive income from the land um, and different things like that. Yeah, I think they kind of, like, think about trying to turn it into an inn, things like that. Um, I'll read an early excerpt from this, which kind of, like, sets up the spook, I guess, of the story. If that... Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, So they're talking about uh, Jeremy Lester, who was the guy um, who had previously owned the house. Um uh, yeah, the guy who owns it now is John Lester, um, and the guy before was Jeremy Lester. Concerning this Jeremy Lester, there was a mystery. No man could say what had become of him. He was in the oak parlor at Martingdale, which is the estate Martingdale is, one Christmas Eve. And before the next morning, he had disappeared, to reappear in the flesh no more. That night, one Mr. Warley, a great friend and boon companion of Jeremy's, had sat playing cards with him until after 12 o'clock chimed. Then he took leave of his host and rode home under the moonlight. After that, no person, as far as could be ascertained, ever saw Jeremy Lester alive. Dun, dun, dun. Um, yeah, there it is. Um, so then it kind of sets up. So actually, I, I lied. Jeremy Lester, then, you know, he disappears and then leaves the house to this Paul Lester, who then dies and leads it to the guy who owns the house now, which, uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind so of I think if the timelines in the book, Jeremy Lester owned the house some like 50 plus years before these guys move in. Is that correct? I think before so. John moves in. Yeah. So John and his sister are the two poor people poor people who are living in poverty and who um through the death of Paul Lester ascend to basically the ownership of Mar- Martingdale. Mm-hmm. Which is this house. I always find it in these kinds of books, this era of books, like Jane Austen as well, a little like confusing to wrap my head around all of these uh, like names and estates and the way that property passed in Victorian England and all of that stuff. It's a little weird. It's very interesting. It's like, I feel like that only happens in California so that people can avoid property tax. <laughs> now. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Prop 13. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, but then of course, then it kind of goes back into the I think the well done of like setting up the scene of this like spooky house, um, spooky big mansion where like no one's really lived there. And like, there's all these stories of like, there's always like thumps up there in the night in these rooms and no one ever goes in there. We don't touch them. Um, The one room has been locked for like 50 years, right? No one has gone in there since Paul came and then got spooked and never came back, right? Yeah, I feel like it was something like he went in that room, 
something happened to him in that room. He locked the doors, shuttered that shit, and left. And then so it's just been, like, the caretakers of the house that have put themselves in, like, a room that's furthest away from the haunted rooms as possible. And they do not leave their room after, like, dark. Um, And then it's, like, all of the other house servants or anyone else who comes to that house is, like, they come during the day and everyone is gone and in their own off of the estate by night. Um, Yeah. And then um, the two people that have been bestowed the house are kind of like, huh, this is weird. Lots of chumps. Uh, But then they kind of, they live there and then they're like, oh, like, vibes are off man uh maybe we can't sell this you know they're kind of like well shit (laughs) yeah like they initially do the whole skeptic thing they're like you know we're people of reason we come from london like we don't believe in things that go bump in the night Mm -hmm. um and then they come to a point where they actually do start hearing like the rattling and, and the thumping and whatnot right yeah um like i think in the showing that they weren't they weren't afraid and they're like um, he says, Claire and I found great enjoyment in exploring every nook and corner of our domain and turning over the contents of old chests and cupboards and examining the faces of our ancestors looking down at us from the walls. Um, yeah, which is kind of, again, goes back to their like, eh, that doesn't exist. They're kind of hoping to like refurbish the place, rent it to people, make a bunch of money. Um, but then... Eventually, um, they, I think what happens is they try to go and sit in the room, um, at night, the, the haunted room. Um, he at first, of course, tries to, what he does is just like, oh, let the sun into this room, air it out, unlock it, leave the door open. Right. And then they sleep and they actually hear those noises, right? And they're Mm -hmm. like, whoa, what the hell? Like, this isn't just made up. They each independently hear and confirm to each other that. There's actually something going on. Yeah, there are bumps in the night. Um, And it's not even, it can't even be at this time just like weird refrigerator night noises. That's true. Yeah, you can't just say it's a refrigerator or the furnace. That's actually an interesting thing like to think about ghost stories of like then versus now. It's like now things just like, houses just make noises. Because of all the machines and things. Yeah, there's just like all of these motors and fans running and all of these things at all times. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting thing. How many houses are haunted? Yeah, it's a good question. I wonder what the effect (laughs) of all those sounds are on our like sleep from a biological perspective. Like I know there's a lot of research into what all the lights do to our sleep, which is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious what the body work is on the sounds. but one, okay, one passage I liked here was where he's talking about, um, basically he says, you know, we heard with our own ears the tramp, tramp, the banging and the clattering, which had been described to us. And he's describing like to the, well, I'm just going to read it. My dear reader, you are doubtless free from superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a, haunt, a haunted house in which to spend a night. Which is all very brave and praiseworthy, but wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate, old country mansion, filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with no one save an old caretaker and his wife, who, living at the extremest end of the building, 
heard nothing of the tramp, tramp, bang, bang going on at all hours of the night. So I really like that passage because it's like, it, it really captures like, you know, the feeling that you would have if you actually ran into that. It's like, yeah, you say it, it's all nonsense. I don't believe in ghosts. There has to be a scientific reason for these things until night after night, you're alone in this weird old building in this country estate with like spooky portraits peering down at you and you hear it and you can't figure out what's going on and you try to like so so then they try to like figure out what's going on yeah so um notes that i had written down and then you reading that passage reminds me um how often do you think some of these stories just derive from someone hearing a bunch of rats (laughs) <laughs> living in a house because i mean like honestly like england it's like they don't have pest control right no one's been living in this house for 50 years especially if it's had just a fucking rats room. yeah it's just rats if i were a rat i would take over that well how do, i guess how does a rat <laughs> account for like thumping i could hear like skittering they just like push each other over they fall off of things I have no idea. It's just interesting to it think about. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. These people like imagining these things after just being woken up by rat noises night after <laughs> night. Um, <laughs> it would suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Glad there are no rats that we know of here. Although maybe, look, these people were from London, so maybe they were used to rats and there was way less rats when they came out to the country estates. That's a good point. That's a very good point. So they, like, like, know the rat noises? I don't know know what year he said it is here, but, like, if it's, like, 1850s London, that's a lot of of fucking rats. I think even now there's probably a solid amount of rats in London. I mean, there's rats here. That's true, but we're probably better at keeping the rats out of your house now than we were in the 1850s. For sure. We've invented, like, pest control solutions, which don't use sticky traps, people. Um, <laughs> it's a good segue. Uh, Margaret works in wildlife rehabilitation, and she has to deal with um, the horrible outcomes of sticky traps all the time. So use live traps and release things outside, please. Or if you really need to kill things, um, snap traps I think are even a better. Sticky traps are the worst. Sticky traps are the worst. Um, you get a lot of birds that look at the things that are stuck in the sticky traps, and they're like, "Hmm, free food." And then they get stuck in there. Then you've just ruined some poor little warbler's whole life. But anyway, um, my other question to you um, mm-hmm. is, so later these people sit and they wait out to see what happens, mm-hmm. right, at night. Um, would you do that in a house like this? Yeah, I think you'd have to. I think, yeah. like, for me... The fear of, like, just dealing with, like, the random banging noises every night is less than, um, is more than the fear of what you're actually going to see. Because to me, the fear comes more, again, from, like, the unknown. Like, I don't know what's causing this, but if I stay awake, maybe I can figure it out, and then at least, you know, I know. And if it's a ghost that kills me, like... So be it. So be it. At least I know. You know? Plus, you died in your own mansion. Yeah. There are worse things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. What about you? I think so. I think, like, you know, thinking about it, I'd be like, duh. <laughs> I ain't afraid of no ghost. Um, <laughs> but, like, I think, like, actually faced with that, I would definitely need a strong glass of whiskey and then, like, a buddy. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I think what I would do is like strong glass of whiskey, a buddy. I would find one of my friends who's like a crystal hippie or something and like consult them about like what herbs I should burn during the day. Yeah. Burn some like sage. Yeah, and just wear burn like the a crystal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like just go all out, you know, to uh-huh. to try to not get murdered by the ghost and then I don't want to be possessed. Yeah, 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 being possessed would suck. I don't want some exorcist shit going down. Yeah. I'd rather be dead than be possessed. Yeah. Um, which is whatever. Um So, yeah. okay, one one side note on this before we go through the conclusion of the story is I felt this story was a lot obviously because it's like 15 pages or so compared to the other one those two pages, but it's much less punchy. Mm-hmm. But even that extension, what's interesting is like going from two pages to 15 pages now gives you the room to put kind of extraneous shit in there that doesn't really matter. Yes. Um, like there's this weird like side note about um, like this dude's love life and how his sister wants him to uh, marry someone else and, and not with these people and they go on some vacation to Rome or whatever. Yeah, and they're like, I'll extend my vacation, but then their vacation buddies have, like, a death in the family, and then it just go yeah, it totally just goes on these tangents, and it's like, okay, let's get to the spooks, guys. <laughs> like, you wonder, would it do anything negative for this story if you just chopped out these two pages right here? And, you know, it's That's not... a good question, honestly. Ultimately, it's not for me to say, right? It's yeah. it's J.H. Riddell's story, and it's her choice on, on what she wants to include or not include. But it's just an interesting thing coming from that other story, which was yeah. so tight and, and so to the point. Um, yeah. That's I think in general, question. when you're writing, it's an, it's an important question. Mm-hmm. A good question to ask is, like, you know, what can I cut out? Um, I find that when I write, I have this like initial pass that tends to be very wordy and a little bit roundabout. And then again, it really does feel like this act of like whittling it down mm-hmm. to like get to the writing that's underneath, right? It's like whittling a stick or something where like you start with this thing and you start and that's what your first draft is almost is like the whole stick. And then you have to like whittle it down into like something sharp and and pointy yeah but i think that sometimes though with those extras it's you're kind of doing the giving the reader the attachment to these people like honestly i think about something like the hobbit like that man did he whittle did he whittle you know but like that's considered one of the greater like writings ever you know like so many people have based their world building and their stories like off of that sort of writing it's a good point and like i mean all of modern fantasy really a huge portion of it is rooted in tolkien and the hobbit the lord of the rings yeah which is to your point not punchy at all it's about as far from punchy as you can get it's almost like walking through like knee-deep mud (laughs) <laughs> yeah I but love like maybe books, you'll see some really cool moss you like <laughs> it's actually a good analogy yeah he takes these like circuit circuitous detours through his like world and it's like tom bombadil is jumping around and singing and stuff and like 80 pages goes by and you're like wait like what just happened yeah why, but it does why? add a certain richness to the world right like i think that's what enables like all of these spin-offs and like different things 
Yeah. And I think sometimes just like the connection to the character, yeah. you know, and it's like really putting yourself in there. But I also agree. It's it's really it is it was fun to go from the two page super punchy to like a longer like fluff story. Right. Right. Um, OK. So how did this resolve? Tell me. Tell me about it. So they basically decide to sit out at night um and this is on christmas eve which is the anniversary of mr jeremy lester's disappearance which is what makes it a christmas story mm-hmm. um so john decides he's gonna stay in the red bed bedchamber which is where some of the banging noises were coming from and he's sitting there and eventually kind of drifts off to sleep and he gets woken up by his sister and she says john come downstairs they're in the oak parlor um so then they go down they open the door they kind of peer into this oak parlor and they see a small card table and two men seated beside it playing cribbage um they could see the face of the younger man and it was jeremy lester the guy who died on Christmas Eve some years prior. Um, And then they kind of describe that they're sitting down and they're playing cards and whatever. One weird side note is um, he was describing his dress and he was like, there were diamond buckles in his shoes. And according to the fashion of his time, he wore knee breeches and silk stockings, which showed off advantageously the shape of a remarkably good leg and ankle. Which I thought was weird. He had solid calf muscles. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's super weird to me that at this time women couldn't show their ankles, but dudes were trying to, like, wear leggings and show off their remarkably good legs and ankles. Maybe there's a reason that John wasn't looking for a wife. Oh, shit. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) A little Shakespeare-esque. Anyway, yeah, so they're sitting there, they play the card, and then the opponent, the one whose face they can't see, says, I win, the game is mine. And then the other guy throws the pack in his guest's face, he says, you're a cheat, you're a liar, take that. Um, They started fighting, a flinging of chairs, and, and just yelling at each other loudly. And then Jeremy strides out of the room goes upstairs and comes down with a couple of rapiers under his arm, which are like swords, essentially. Um, and then he gave the other man his choice of the weapons, and they... Noble. Yeah, very noble. Um, they go outside, and then Jeremy says, when you say three, he said to the man whose back was still towards us. Um, and then the other guy goes, one... Two, and then just kills Jeremy Lester, like murders him in cold blood, uh, instead of doing the duel. The noble thing? Yeah, instead of doing the noble thing and dueling properly. Um, and then basically they found out what had happened to the owner of Martin Dale from these, you know, apparitions that were doing this fighting. Um, and then they go, they get the caretaker. Um, the next day, there's also a massive snowstorm on this night, um, similar to the Christmas where Jeremy disappeared. 
Um, and then they find, they confess to the vicar, who's like some sort of religious figure in the church. People who are in the Anglo-Saxon church would probably know. Anglican church, not Anglo-Saxon church. Um, and then basically uh, a fortnight later, the snow melts away. Um, they found Jeremy Lester's body after like whatever, 50 or 100 years. And um, nobody saw the face of the opponent. However, there sits the diamond buckles. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and the one last thing real quick is that um, they go to have dinner. But this actually goes to show maybe I was wrong and it wasn't a useless side tangent. But they go to have dinner at their travel buddies that they met in Rome's house. And his sister sees a portrait on the wall and gasps because that guy was the guy who killed Jeremy Lester in cold blood. Um, it turns out that guy is like their dad, Mr. Cronson, and he's still alive. Um, but yeah, that's basically the, the end of that story. So there it is. That's why they did that world building. Yeah, so yeah. maybe I was wrong and uh, I was too quick to jump. I will say that in general, I do have a preference for like punchy and tight writing over super flowery writing um so like i I tend to like you know um like hemingway's writing style uh versus oh i can't think of someone who's super flowery right now but i like i like hemingway's writing you know very punchy very kind of like dry kind of like hits you in the face with the point um i like that yeah um yeah overall great stories i I love a spooky Christmas. Um, I love a spooky anything, but, you know, spooky Christmas, heck yeah. Okay, so before we close, Margaret, since you've read both Roald Dahl's Book of Ghost Stories and Irish Ghost Stories, which was compiled by David Stewart Davies, do you have a recommendation of one compilation of ghost stories for the listener to pick up? I mean, honestly, no contest, the Roll Doll book okay. of ghost stories. I think, um, yeah, I think they're just unarguably better okay. stories. Um, maybe the Irish people, they just don't necessarily have all that it takes. No offense, <laughs> Ireland, but, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I of course, I did also like the Irish book of ghost stories. And it's like a neat little, it's a schnazzy little book really um but i liked i liked the roald dahl book of ghost stories um i think that he truly did put together a lot of great stories um yeah also i'm a sucker for almost anything roald dahl roald dahl is great he really is top tier Mm -hmm. well there you have it um that's our first christmas episode um Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Happy Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year. Um, I'm sure I left several things out. Um, I think Krampus Day. I don't know if that's a real thing. Yeah, I don't either. But basically, you know, I hope that everyone's staying safe and healthy. And um, I hope you have the privilege of enjoying some time with your family or friends. Yeah, some time off. Sleep in. Eat some cookies. Eat some cookies. Do some reading with your time off if if you feel so inclined. Yeah. I hope you have a nice book, a nice hot cup of beverage of your choice, and a cookie. 
that you can curl up with this holiday season. Merry, merry time. Yeah. yeah. It's been quite the year, so take some rest. Yeah. Peace out, people. Uh, good times. <laughs>